Our sermon text this morning is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing, them, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All right, so with this simple text this morning, we will preach. You know, the, uh, the truth is that we do live in an upside-down world, where this text is, of course, very offensive, but Carl Truman, I like what he says. He says, things once regarded as obvious and unassailable virtues have in recent years been subject to vigorous criticism. Indeed, it can seem as if things that almost everyone believed as unquestioned orthodoxy the day before yesterday, the marriage that marriage is between one man and one woman, for example, are now regarded as heresies advocated only by the dangerous lunatic fringe, which is true. We are the lunatic fringe in our society today if we promote and, and actually stand upon Bible texts like the one that we just read. And, and, you know, and because of this, though, because of this climate that's around us, this, this harsh, hostile environment we live in, we are tempted to protect the Bible from its critics. And we try to make its words sound reasonable and less harsh to the critical ear. However, the Bible itself is the best defense of the Bible. The Bible itself is the best defense of the Bible. Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon, he said about three different sermons he, he used this theme, but especially in this sermon in a missions conference, he said, there seems to, to me to have been twice as much done in recent ages, ages in defending the Bible as in expounding it. But if the whole of our strength shall henceforth go to the exposition and spreading of it, we may leave it pretty much to defend itself. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. The answer to every objection against the Bible is the Bible. So what we have to do is stop being ashamed of the Bible and just speak the Bible and trust the Holy Spirit of God to take that word, that two-edged sword, and do his work in the hearts of people. 
But if we don't speak it, how will they hear? Again, today I therefore approach this text not as an apologist and, and not as an academic scholar per se. I simply approach this text as a preacher expounding the Word of God. That's, that's what we're called to do as the church, to simply expound the word, exegete and expound the word, get the word out. The word will take care of itself. So today, as we look at this, this text in Romans 1, 24 through 25, we'll be talking about a lot of sensitive things, and yet they are true things. And what better place to hear sensitive subject matter than from God's word and in God's house? So parents, I apologize if there's any strong questions asked later, but this is a, a good thing to remind us of our responsibility to catechize our children in the truth and to use teaching moments. Verse 24, Paul begins by reminding us of the main problem that leads up to where we see ourselves in these following verses. Verse 24, he says, Therefore God gave them up. Therefore God gave them up. Three times in this text, God uses that phrase, gave them up. In verse 24 here, verse 26, and in verse 28. It's a very serious phrase coming from God. I give you up. To give up, what does that mean? God gave them up. It simply means God removed any restraining grace in their lives. God pretty much left them to themselves. He's, he's doing nothing now. He's backing away totally. There's no chastisement. There's no conviction of sin. There's no, 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 no judgment against sin that, as far as, as trying to bring them back. At this point, he's saying, no, just go as far as you want to go. Your heart, have, have at it. Your heart will lead you. <laughs> and, and, and we see where our hearts lead us in this text. We see when we're left to ourselves as human beings to follow our hearts, which is the popular phrase among us humans, follow your heart. We see where that ends up when God lets us do it. So we finish this text, this verse, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Paul breaks into a doxology of praise right there at the end of that statement. And yet he brings this great truth, this central truth, that the real problem here, all these sins that we're seeing are the results of a root problem. The root problem is they served the creature rather than the creator. That's what Paul said originally last, uh, in verses 18 on, where he said they suppressed the truth of God. They knew him, but they suppressed him. They would not honor him as God, but they exchanged his truth for, for their lie. So they served the creature rather than the creator. And I really have to say we in this. It's not just them. This, this is a... This, whole chapter is an indictment against all the human race. Paul is basically putting mankind on trial before God. That's what's happening here. We are prone to wander away from God and to serve the creature, us, more than the creator, God. It's the root of our problem. We, we, we take our focus off, off of God and put it on us. 
We stop looking at what God calls good and we start calling things good. We start deciding what is good rather than listening to God tell us what he says is good. That's what self-worship is all about. We replace God for, for ourselves. This started back in the garden with Eve, if you remember. What, did, what do we see in chapter 1? We see God creating things, and every time he would make something, he would say, and it's good. God called it good. What he made is good. And it happened over and over, and it was good. God made this, and it was good. God made that, and it was good. But then by the time we get to chapter 3, we see something else happening. We see Eve tempted by the serpent, and she looks at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the Bible says that when she looked at it, she saw, she saw that it was good. Eve called that good. And Eve began to call good what God had already called evil. And we've been doing that ever since. That's the problem with our self-worship and everything being about me. I take my eyes off the one who made me. And, and, and so, so this idea of the self, right, it's all about me. This, this was really made popular, the idea of self, my, the self, the inner self, who are we in, inside by, by psychologists like Sigmund Freud and, and other psychologists have grabbed this through the, through the recent, well, 60 years. And now we're all about self, right? In, in, in an unhealthy way. Who am I and what is my purpose are not bad questions in themselves. But the answer we give, what, what definition do we give to that question? Who am I and what is my purpose? Now, traditionally, God has answered that question for us. And societies that have kept their eyes on God and worship the creator more than the creature have answered that question in a way that guides further generations to the truth of who they are in the sight of God, not themselves. Here's, a, here's Carl Truman in his book that's out there, by the way. We have a few copies called Strange New World. It's on that top shelf out there. He answers this question in two ways. First, the traditional way. Who am I? And, and the traditional answer, a traditional definition of who we are and what's our purpose. He says, am I, for example, to be understood primarily in terms of my obligations toward and dependence upon others? Does education consist in training me in the demands and expectations of the wider culture and forming me, shaping me into that which will serve the community at large? Again, an outward focus and how I fit into this, this community that God has made me to live in and how I serve others. Look what he says. Is growing up a process by which I learn to control my feelings, to act with restraint, and sacrifice my desires for the good of the community around me. Is that who I am? Am, am, I, am I made, is my purpose outward focused? Am I made to glorify something other than myself? Am I made to be selfless in a sense? I look at this and I can't help but think, especially the growing up part. <laughs> When he says, is, my, is, is, my, is growing up a process by which I learn to control my feelings, to act with restraint, to, to actually push down desires that may hurt other people and myself and ultimately God? Am I to, to, to grow into a person that actually thinks of sacrificing myself for the needs of others? 
It's kind of the traditional definition of who we are, what we were made for, what's our purpose. I think of the greatest generation in America, of which we have a man sitting right here that was part of that. And, and just the point, just the thought in my mind of, you see, this mindset, this ideology, this worldview, this other focusedness was made evident in that generation when, when I, I can't even imagine. Some of the stories Henry's told me, I can't even imagine a 19-year-old and thousands of other 19, 18, 19, 20-year-olds choosing to walk off of a landing craft and walk into a barrage of bombs and bullets and body parts flying everywhere. But they did it. They, they did. They didn't even think about it. My question is, based on the ideology and worldview of our world today, can we expect the same? So there's the problem. Whenever we begin to drift away from a focus of God and why he made us, and, and, and we understand the properness of life being not about us, but God has made us for a higher purpose than us. That leads us to the second thing that Carl Truman says. He gives a more of a progressive definition of what the I am is. What is the self? What, what is it about? And here's where we find ourselves today in modernism, postmodernism. He says, he asked the question, or am I to understand myself as born free and able to create my own identity? Does education consist in enabling me to express outwardly that which I feel inwardly? Is growing up a process not of learning restraint, but rather of capitalizing on opportunities to express myself, to do what I want to do, to do what feels good to me? Man, we see this expressed all over society. One of the biggest, I guess, things that I recently have seen and thought, wow, look at this teaching moment was this movie Red Panda, where the little girl turns into a panda. It's her inner panda, right? But in that, the message is, over and over by adults, don't, don't suppress your inner panda. Let it out. Now, the panda can come out and maybe be dangerous, but you hurt people. That's kind of the, the, the surrounding plot, right? The panda may be uncontrollable at times, but the advice given is don't suppress that. That's you, man. Just let it out. It doesn't matter who it hurts. If you feel good when you're the panda, do it. My panda, my choice. Literally was a phrase in the movie. So you see, the motto today of a generation who has left They've stopped looking to God and worshiping him, putting him first, and now they've looked to themselves. The motto today is you do you, right? You do you. <laughs> Whatever you do, be true to yourself. Man, these are phrases we've all heard. Follow your heart. If it feels good, do it. For generations now, we've heard that. As I said, over the past 60 years or more, this has been slowly eroding our culture. So what is the answer? Well, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? Who am I and what is my purpose? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
that's our purpose. That's a biblical worldview of why you and I were created and why we exist and what our purpose is. Man, we get so self-focused. And the world becomes all about us. It's like, what is my divine destiny in life? I am so special, just me, me, me. Look at all my selfies. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's amazing. It is. It just, this, this, this generation. We all fall pride in it. I'm not saying that we're all in this water, folks. We've all grown up and been kind of affected by some of this. But my, my wife and I were in Utah and, and at Arches uh, you know, National Park and hiking and beautiful. We saw this lady, this, this couple, and I'm telling you, I mean, we take the occasional selfie, no, no doubt. Let's remember this moment. This is great. Okay, let's go look at it now and enjoy this. And the bulk of our pictures are not of us. They're of the beautiful scenery and the arches and the mountains and the trails. But I'm telling you, this couple, this girl and her who, who, the husband, he had to take at least, I'm telling you why we were there, 35, 40 pictures of her, different poses. I'm talking weird stuff like, like she's, she's up on, she's doing this stuff, this stuff. She's on the edge of cliffs. I, I, and we laugh at that. But, but again, that's this Instagram generation, right? You have to get these pictures. They had a little girl with her. Here's the saddest part. One day, one, 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 day, one time as we were there, this little girl said, are you ever going to take a picture of me, Mommy? So again, we're in the generation that has, has now taken our eyes off God and put them on us. And this is the result. This is the fruit of this. Of course, we're always worried and depressed because all we're looking about, all we're looking to is us. We're constantly inward focused. The reason a generation could sacrifice their lives for the freedom that we have today is that they had the worldview that said, I am made for more than myself. Even if they weren't all Christians, they all realized that there's a creator who made me and my, my purpose is bigger than me. It's to serve the community around me. So the, so the, the, the biblical worldview, instead of whatever you do, be true to yourself, 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells the Christian, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the Christian view of self. The motto of the believer is not you do you, but you do Christ. You do Christ. Paul said, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We're to pray, not my will be done, but thy will be done. John the Baptist said, I must decrease. He must increase. Do you see the pattern? And how far we've come in this postmodern world because we've taken our eyes off and God has turned us over. We are under judgment. These are just the results of being placed under judgment. So having put that, that's, that's, the, that's the big problem, folks. We all have a desire to serve self rather than the creator. And anytime we do that, we're going to fall into some trouble. Now, God, through, through this writing here of Paul is showing us what happens to an entire society and some of the benchmarks, some of the, some of the high water marks that a society has been turned over. And he begins in verse 26 through 27 by showing us that. Verse 26. 
for this reason, for this reason, because they have decided they will not worship me, they will not hear my truth, they want to serve themselves, so I've turned them over to do that. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. Mark that word, that, 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 that short phrase, dishonorable passions. What does that look like? For their women exchange the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, to those that are unnatural. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And I know today in our society there's so much squabbling in the evangelical world about translating the, these verses properly. There's, this is the most, uh, this is the biggest and largest verse that deals with homosexuality in the Bible. But there are six places throughout the Bible that we see homosexuality mentioned in Scholars today, instead of submitting to God and saying, okay, God, this is your word, we're, we're, we're spending time deciding, what does that word mean? And are we really translating it right? And what did Paul mean by homosexual? I don't think he meant what we think he meant. <laughs> but I'm telling you, folks, if we just read God's word, it's very plain here. This language means what it says. It simply says what it means. The word passions, pathos, means strong physical desire, particularly of a sexual nature. So there are dishonorable passions that people have been given over to. Wrong, sinful, sexual desires. Now, I just want to make a quick note here with that word desires because we also have a move in the evangelical world that says, well, it's not wrong to, to live in your same-sex attractedness and still be a Christian and still claim to be same-sex attracted, do nothing about it, just live life. I'm same-sex attracted. That's who I am. I'm gay. That's just the way it is. That's always going to be. I'm not going to act on it. But it's okay if I don't act. It's, and wait a minute. God says that even the passions, the lustings, the desire is sin. Did not Jesus even say to the heterosexual and homosexual world that if we lust on somebody, especially we're speaking to the heterosexual world in Matthew when he said, if you look on a woman and you lust, if you have the passion in your heart for her, you've committed adultery in your heart as far as I'm concerned. You've sinned. So what am I saying? I'm just saying that no matter what, the sin in our life is, we never, we never take it as an identifier. I don't know any Christian that walk in here and say, how you doing? Welcome to our church. What's your name? Oh, I'm George. I'm a klepto-Christian. Oh, yeah, I steal things, or at least I want to, and, that, and that's my identity. What? No, we don't do that. We identify ourselves as Christ's. He is in us, and I hate my sin, and I'm going to continually kill it, push it down, not just accept it and embrace it. Even the inward thoughts and sins of our heart, the anger that we have to want to kill somebody. Jesus said, if you hate your brother and you want to do him harm, I look at that as murder. That's murder of the heart. It's sin. It should be confessed and turned from. But especially he goes on to talk about dishonorable sexual acts. Now, let me just say, are sexual desires ever honorable? 
We have to not go to any extremes here like some have done and say, well, sex, all sex is bad then. No, that's not what the Bible's saying. Dishonorable passions. There are honorable passions. There are honorable sexual desires. Hebrews 13.4 shows us this. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. There's a lot in this verse, this short verse. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There are two things mentioned here. First, let the marriage bed, let, let, the marriage, let marriage be held in honor. Marriage is a sanctifier of sex. That's kind of what he's saying. Sex is sanctified, made right, made holy in marriage. It's made honorable only in marriage. That's what this says. The bed, therefore, is undefiled. That, that bed, of course, we know what that refers to, the consummation of a marriage. It's, it's undefiled. It's spotless. It's pure. It's holy in marriage. And in marriage only. Because God goes on to clarify this. God will judge the sexually immoral. That deals with fornication outside of marriage, sex before, prenuptial, if you will, sexual activity, and I will judge the adulterers. That's postnuptial. That's sex outside of the bonds of marriage. The only place, this is what Hebrews 13, 4 is showing us so clearly. The only place sexual passions are right is in marriage. That's what it's saying. That's it. What about natural? The word natural there. It literally means God's created order. God's created order or God's created norm. The norm of norms, right? That norms all things. That's God's design. It's natural. It's normal. What is that normal created order? That's, this, if we just take the Bible again, folks, it answers our questions. We, we could debate all day long about feelings and do you know my cousin and oh, I've got a daughter. You put all that away and we go to the Bible, it tells us truth. This may sound callous, but we can deal with our feelings later. Let's first of all look and see what God says. Let's first of all look and see what God says. The normal created order for sexual desire and for sexual activity is given to us. It's in Matthew 19, four through six. It began in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, it's stated there, but Jesus restates it, not changing it one bit, over 2,000 years later to, to say, hey, it's still, it's still in place. <laughs> this, is, this is it. The Pharisees were asking Jesus about marriage and trying to adjust it in some way, right? Can we do this? Can we do that? And what does Jesus answer them in verse 4? He answered, have you not read? <laughs> I love that. Where does Jesus take them? He doesn't debate them with psychological arguments. He takes them to Scripture. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting now from the Pentateuch, from the books of Moses, from the first book, Genesis. And this is what it says. Have you not read? Here it is. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and that word wife can also be a translated girl so so some 
sleight of hand evangelicals like the, the liberals would say, well, that word wife, it could be a, that a man can have a wife that's a man. You know, the homosexuals can call one another husband and wife, but no, no, no. The Greek is too good for that. <laughs> Greek has feminine, feminine tenses, and this is in the feminine. The word wife can mean girl or the wife of a man, um, and it's f- feminine. It's just feminine. The word is feminine. It means what it means here. There's a male and a female, and the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's sex. That's what it is. But it's in marriage. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, God is, so Jesus is talking here about what God has established. The Pharisees are asking specifically about marriage, and Jesus goes back to this and says, this is marriage. And what God has joined together, don't, don't separate. What God has instituted, don't change. <laughs> All sexual sin is destructive, is what he's saying. Sexual sin is sent outside of the parameters of marriage. Marriage is the protector, sanctifier. Picture of the gospel, picture of that relationship. There's not, so sex is anything outside of marriage, then sex is distorted. Heterosexual or homosexual. But let me move on, let me move on here. This is plain, by the way. This is plain. This is, this, this is it. People say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. He just did. He doesn't need to say anything else. He says something about gender. He said something about marriage, what it is and what it's not. And he said something about sexuality. All of it's right here. Male, female. There's your genders. There's two. God made it that way. Marriage, what is it? It's between a man and a woman. Nothing else. Nothing else. Period. It's impossible to redefine marriage because God has already defined it and it's, that's just the way it is. It's like calling what we have called automobiles for years, call it a dishwasher. You can't just change it. <laughs> you can't just say, well, that means this. No. All sexual sin is destructive to the society, but, but here's what, what I want to point out now. Homosexuality is the sin that most demonstrates the radical nature of mankind's rebelliousness towards God. I guess what I'm saying is people will say, well, isn't all sin the same? Now, let's be careful here. Listen up. I don't want to, don't leave here misrepresenting me. Are all sins equal? In one sense, here it is. The smallest, tiniest, itty-bittiest sin condemns me and puts me under the wrath of a holy God, period. So all sins in that sense are equal. Whether we see them as big or small in consequence, all sin, all unrighteousness, any imperfection condemns me and puts me under the wrath of a holy God. So let's be clear on that. And any sin, no matter how heinous or small, any sin can be forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we understand that. I'm so plain on that. However, to the question, are more sins more heinous than others? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Well, I thought, you know, that sin was sin and grace is grace and you, 
Well, we've got to take the Bible again. We can't take our feelings. It just seems fair that if sin's going to be sin, it's all the same. And so the heterosexual sin is just as bad as homosexual sin. No, there's, a, there, there's, there's something we have to understand here. Jesus clarified some sins as being grievous and heinous, and he used them as examples. When he was, he sent his apostles out to preach the gospel, and these cities refused to hear. What did Jesus say? He took the worst example he could think of, in the, the, humanly speaking, and said, it's going to be more tolerable for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Because if what you heard preached was preached to them, they would repent. But why? Here's the point I'm making there. Why would he use that? Because he's showing that there's some things that are just heinous. There are examples of like, this is, a, this is bad for society, bad for people. This is, the consequences are atrocious. This is that. So, so obviously, I think we all understand this to a degree. Like stealing a paperclip from work. If you're going to be judged on the, the court of human courtrooms, right? You steal a paperclip from work, that's your, that's your you know, sentence. I mean, that's what you're up for, stealing a paperclip. And then we bring in Adolf Hitler, who killed over 6 million human beings in grotesque manners. Are they equal? Equal? No. One is more heinous than the other. They're both sin. But one is more heinous. So why are you stretching this? Why are you pushing this so much? I think we need to understand this. We must see it. Homosexual sin. Paul's putting it first here in this list, by the way, to show what, what's the kind of, what's, what does the people look like that God gives up? What's the highest watermark of that heinousness? that society will look like when God gives them up. And he went right to it. And he explained it in great detail. Notice these other sins we're going to see, he doesn't explain it in detail at all. He just, he just mentions them in general. But he explains in great detail and puts first the sin of homosexuality. And there's two reasons I believe that we can see this. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield was asked this question. And many of you may not know Rosaria Butterfield. She was a, 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 just a, a stringent, um, atheistic professor, a lesbian for years in her life. God gloriously saved her. And she, and she was asked this question, hey, Rosaria, are, 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 is, is homosexuality more heinous than heterosexual sin? And she said, yes. And here's why. Two main reasons we've got we to see this. Number one, the language that the Bible uses to describe it throughout the Bible is different than most sins. Words like abomination, unnatural, against nature, dishonorable. So, so the words used to denounce it from God are strong, strong. And number two, this is a fantastic point, heterosexual sex can be honorable. Homosexual sex is never made honorable. It cannot be. You see, what I'm saying is heterosexual sex is made honorable in marriage. That's how God intended it. If two gay people get, quote, married, it doesn't change the fact that it's still abomination. It cannot be made honorable. It's dishonorable passions, God says. And he talks about judgment harshly on it. 
Let me give you a hypothetical scenario. Because here's the thing. People say, well, it's quantitative, not qualitative. Man, I'm getting in all kinds of trouble here, man. <laughs> but that's okay. We all have to be discerning, right? Even within our evangelical world and our heroes and people that we, we look to, that's why Paul said, be careful. Only follow me as I follow Christ. Search the scriptures daily to see if those things are true, what I'm saying, right? Don't just take everything I say because I'm some celebrity. No. Now, I'm saying there's good brothers and sisters that we can agree to disagree with on things. And, and I'm just going to say, it, it's, it's, we got to call out things that may seem a little unbiblical, no matter who they are. Not be afraid. Oh, that's somebody way up there. They know way more than me. You know, if I'm preaching the Bible and God's spirit is verifying it, then that's where we need to stand. But I'm just going to throw this out. You know, Jen Wilkins has said, and she's, again, a great woman's Bible teacher, but we've got to listen to things. And... She has mentioned that, that we need to whisper where the Bible, uh, what the Bible whispers about and, and shout what the Bible shouts. Well, that's, that's a, good, a good principle per, per se. J.D. Greer took that a little further and said, well, the Bible whispers about sexual sin. So we should just whisper about sexual sin. But it shouts about helping the poor and being kind and all those things. Why? Because there's more places in the Bible that talk about that. There just happens to be more texts in the Bible that mention love your neighbor and love and be kind and, 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 and take care of orphans and, and, and those things. Then there are those six places in the Bible that mention homosexuality. So they deduce by that that, well, since the Bible doesn't have a huge quanti quantity of a message against homosexuality, it's just whispering about it. So we can kind of disregard it. But it shouts about other things that we're not talking about. So we need to talk about those things and, and make those the majors. Here's my point. <laughs> Woo. Let's put ourselves in a, a hypothetical Hunger Game scenario. If I ever happen to be dropped, and if you don't know what Hunger Games are, just watch this, just pray and, and wait and just hang in there. <laughs> anyway, but let's just say you're in some, some contest right? And, and there's a rule book given you, and there's other contestants, and, and every, there's, so there's this, this, this rule book of 600, 700 rules, we'll say. 700 rules and commands. 699 of those commands say basically something to the effect of being kind to the other, you know, be kind, and be nice when you're playing, and, and so forth. But rule 7a says, if you break this rule, Rule 7a, you will be burned alive and a millstone tied around your neck and you'll be cast into the, the lake. I don't care what the other 699 rules say, I'm not breaking rule 7-1. <laughs> because it's qualitative, not quantitative, that matters when God speaks. God only has to say something once, by the way, right? So this idea, this argument that, well, you know, it's, it's just not talked about that much. It doesn't have to be. If God said it and he lays out the principles and we see it clearly, that's what we obey. And so God has established these moral absolutes, folks, for our flourishing. I want us to understand that. There's moral absolutes for our, for our flourishing, not to take away our joy, not to, not to hurt people. It's for the flourishing of mankind because God made us and he knows what makes us flourish. He knows what makes societies grow strong and flourish. So, so I just want to give a quick, just to show us that, that God's word 
is validated in history. We see it happen. We see it happen over and over. Societies that take their eyes off of him and decide to look to themselves, just like he warned, will be turned over to themselves. And that brings destruction, not joy and pleasure and fulfillment. It brings destruction, pain, suffering, depression, suicide. I mean, I understand that people say, well, because you Christians are preaching these morals, you're, you're hurting people. No, my friends, what's hurting people is they've taken their eyes off of God and putting them on themselves. They're living for an empty God that cannot deliver themselves. It will always bring pain and depression and unfulfillment when you look to yourself and try to please yourself and disobey the one who made you. In 1934, there was a book written by J.D. Unwin called Sex and Culture. He was an ethnologist and social anthropologist at Oxford University and Cambridge University, and he studied the effects of sexual constraint or lack thereof in, 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 in 86 civilizations through 5,000 years of history. So this is a pretty big study group. And he, and he looked at a couple of things, prenuptial and postnuptial. He looked at the prenuptial constraints, such as, um, was this society complete, complete sexual freedom? Post-mutual, I mean, they didn't care about sex before marriage. Were they strict chastity before marriage? Or were they something in between? And then post-nuptial, he studied the, 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 the areas of strict monogamy. Were they monogamous once you were married? Strict monogamy? Was it partial monogamy? Was it full-blown polygamy? So looking at these 86 cultures over 5,000 years, he came up with some findings. His book was 600 pages. He said, this is just a small sampling. If, if I were to give everything I found, it would take seven volumes that big. He said, this is just a preview. But there are some significant findings, and I just want to give three significant findings from that study. Concerning the effects of sexual constraints in these societies, look what he found. Increased sexual constraints, either pre- or post-nuptial, always led to increased flourishing of a culture. This guy doesn't even claim to be a Christian, by the way. He's just looking at the facts. Conversely, increased sexual freedom always led to the collapse of a culture within three generations. The next significant finding that I'll talk about is the one that dealt with highest flourishing of culture. The highest flourishing of culture. What did he find? The most powerful combination was prenuptial chastity coupled with absolute monogamy. Rationalist cultures that retained this combination for at least three generations exceeded all other cultures in every area. Hmm. Maybe there's something to God's word, his standards, the creator who made us. Number three, final thing I want to note from this book. What about those cultures who, who, who just practice total sexual freedom? Let it all hang out. If total sexual freedom was embraced by a culture, that culture collapsed within three generations to the lowest state of flourishing. It is characterized by people who have little interest in much else other than their own wants and needs. At this level, the culture is usually conquered by another culture. God loves us 
and wants what's best for us. It's our stubborn, selfish, arrogant hearts that look away from him and refuse his truth and suppress his truth for our own truth. And it leads to destruction. By the way, our sexual revolution in America began 1960s and 70s. We are entering our third generation. And we're seeing the same symptoms, by the way, that Unwin pointed out. A decline in theism, where that, that population believes in a God. A decline in rational thinking. We're definitely seeing that. Decline in monogamy. All these things. We're seeing it. And the list goes on and on, though, folks. Now, so before we jump, now, again, I, I mean what I said. Obviously, there are some sins more heinous. And, and God is showing us this for a culture to celebrate and embrace this kind of sin is an abomination to him and shows that we've already been given over to his judgment and let go to ourselves. But all of us are included, as I said before. Romans 1, 28 through 31 continue. Look what it says. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that's all of us, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. That's how we are, right? If we can't find enough sins, we'll invent some. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Cutthroat. That's us. That's, that's human beings. And there's not a lot that needs to be said here. This, there are lists like this all through the Bible showing humans what they are and saying that none who practice these things and embrace these as your identity will ever inherit the kingdom of God. Plain and simple. Now, I didn't say that people who battle with these may occasionally fall into a sin. I didn't say that because the Bible says he, he who thinks he has no sin lies to himself and the truth's not in him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. We understand that. But I'm talking about those who embrace these things, say that's their identity, and rebelliously continue to hang on to those things in the face of a God who says, let that go. They will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's not repentance. That's not even battling sin. The Christian hates his sin and battles his sin. The lost man clings to his sin at all costs. But look at this. It ends with this interesting point in verse 32. And this is the indictment. Though they know God's righteous decree. So Paul goes back to his first point. All of us down deep inside know that there's a right and a wrong. Our conscience is there. Now we sear it as humans. And there are humans who have very seared consciences. And then they end up calling themselves atheists. Like they don't believe in God. But that doesn't make them without excuse. Though they know God's righteous decrees. That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. They support them. They applaud them. They celebrate them in the street and call it a pride parade. And it stinks in the nostrils of a holy God. And there are, quote, Christians and, quote, churches who applaud it and affirm it. 
But again, lest we become proud and arrogant, we all are under the wrath of God because of our sin. We all deserve it. Those who in this room watch hours and hours of pornography, cheating on your wife and your heart, those who are so ambitious for money that you let your children not see you half, half, half the time because you're so busy working, all you care about is the almighty dollar and that new gadget or car or house, greed. Those who are so prideful, you're building your own Instagram fame and you're looking at yourself all the time and what do people think of me? Self-worship is self-worship, folks. These verses are an indictment against all of us. All of us. How many of us, how many of us do you, well, I don't condone those things. <laughs> how many of us watch certain sitcoms that literally promote these things that God says he hates? And we laugh. Are we not giving approval to those who do them? We know that God hates them. We know that God says people who do these things will die. And yet, we not only see people doing them, but those who may not do them themselves, they look at those who do and they approve So we're all in pretty bad shape is really what this says. I'm going home. I'll see y'all. I feel, you know, I mean, it is, it, it's bad is what I want us to see. We're, we're, all, we're all under the, the, the judgment of a holy God and we can't get there on our own. But alas, there is hope. That's the good news of this whole, whole chapter. Now, I know you're thinking, really? Yes. Because remember where we began back in verse 16. What did Paul say? Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for freedom and rescue and deliverance from that sin that you can't break. That you can't overcome. You can't do enough good works to make up for the hole that you have dug in, in your own sinfulness. That's why Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. That's why he kept, kept proclaiming it. It's the only good news. Why? It's the only power that can deliver us. The only power of salvation to anyone who believes. There's the glorious truth. Repent and believe that Christ, while you were yet a sinner, loved you, died for you, was buried and rose again and offers you everlasting life and will begin sanctifying you, will begin growing you in his grace. Things will begin to fall off and new things will begin to come on that are good, good habits, good, good service in the kingdom, good works. Slowly but surely, we are going to be made perfect until that final day of glorification when there is no more sin, no more internal battles of self, when we are totally in the presence of Christ. And absent from sin. That's what, by the way, let's, let's just finish those verses. We, we can't stop. Why? He says, it's, it's to everyone who believes, the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, from beginning to end. It's by faith. For, the, for it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. You can't live by your good works. We can't do it. We live because of faith, faith in Christ. This is what first, and I'm done with this. I know you're worrying. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Look at this. This is this glorious news. This, this all brings it together. This, this is a correlation. This is, this is connected. 
to what Romans 1 is saying. It's a little synopsis of Romans 1. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It's the whole synopsis of what we just saw Paul say with hope. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That should bother us. See, again, this is why our world's where it's at. Nobody cares. They don't even know there is a kingdom of God. They don't even look to God. They're, they're looking to themselves. Generation after generation has been taught that you are your own God. The only thing that matters is what you want. There is no God to worry or fear over or worship. And yet this should bother us because it's real. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So we're without hope. That's all of us. And such were some of you. Ooh, a word of, a little glimmer of hope. Wait a minute, were? Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise be to God. The good news of the gospel. That's our hope. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver, deliver me from this, this flesh? Praise be to God, Jesus Christ. That's what the world needs to hear, folks. We can argue all day long with people in sin. We just have to open the Bible. We just have to let the lion out, the lion of the gospel, and let it do its work. And let's rest in this room Boy, this is why we come together. We look around at people and say, such were some of us. We still, we still see some of those old grave clothes kind of still being torn off, but hey, we've been washed. We've been made righteous because of Christ. Let's continue to look to him. Let's continue to, to gaze upon him and honor and worship him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the truth, even though it hurts us. We rejoice, Father, because the truth of our sin is overwhelmingly blown away by the truth of your grace found in Jesus Christ. Let us proclaim it. Let us rest in it daily. Let us remind ourselves the only reason we are what we are is by the grace of God found in Christ. In Christ's name we pray.